0: Let's go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We continue on um, through our journey in Mark. We're, we're Chronologically, we're in the last few days of Jesus' time on earth. Um, well, his, his time on earth before his resurrection. He took another 40 days after that, but we're within a week of Calvary. Um, He had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and last week we talked about that and how the the people forfeited what God offered them He offered Himself as the Messiah and and it looks as though they welcomed Him but we'll see in just a matter of days they, they go from Hosanna to crucify Him Now He's gone back to Bethany, and uh, we're going to find out that this particular time, I don't know that he goes back to the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And I'll tell you why I think that in a minute. But in verse number 12, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto unto it, the fig tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. By the way, they heard it because he meant for them to hear it. He meant for them to hear it. And they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the table of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. This is the second time he did this. And would not suffer or allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught saying unto them, it's not written, my house, I'm sorry, is it not written? My house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves and the scribes and chief priests heard it and "'sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, "'because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. "'And when even was come, he went out of the city. "'And in the morning, as they passed by, "'they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. "'And Peter, calling to to remembrance, saith unto him, "'Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. "'And Jesus answering saith unto them, "'Have faith in God.' For verily, truly, I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. All right. We won't get to this tonight. But verse 23 comes with qualifications. Remember, we compare Scripture with Scripture and use the whole of Scripture to form our doctrine. This is not a basis for what we call name it and claim it philosophy and theology, okay? Otherwise, there'd be a Bentley parked out there or something. Therefore, I say unto you, whatsoever, things, whatsoever what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. In these verses, we, we find three lessons. Three lessons. Okay, First, we see the lesson of missing fruit, 12 through 14, 20 through 21, and that's where we're going to be tonight. We're going to talk about missing fruit. But then we're also going to see a mystical fraud. When he goes into the temple, what, what is he really punishing? He's punishing the fact that this temple represents a religion this mystical offering to the people that is in reality just one big fraud now i'm not saying judaism was a fraud i'm saying the way they are going about it at this point is fraudulent completely fraudulent and he's going to expose that and by the way there's there's a there's a connection between the temple and the fig tree we'll get into that next week lord willing but there's a connection there okay All right, but then he finishes off by talking about mountain-moving faith. Okay, so there's three lessons going on in what we just read, and with the Lord's help, they're all connected, by the way, but with the Lord's help tonight, we're going to spend some time talking about missing fruit. Missing fruit. Father, would you help me as I teach this, Lord? I I feel um, a little more inadequate tonight than I normally do. Um I've studied the passage, I've talked to you about it, I've done all the things I think I'm supposed to do, but I'm just keenly aware of how badly I need you to just take over this thing, and speak to our hearts, and just help us, I pray. May Jesus be lifted up, for it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to focus on, on verses 12 through 14, and then verses 20 and, and 21. So let's begin, first of all, as we talk about missing fruit, let's, let's start with the problem. There's a problem there. Chapter 12. I'm sorry, verse 12, chapter 11. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. Now, I don't think that Jesus had stayed. He, he was in Bethany, he had come from Bethany, but I don't think he stayed in Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house the night before, and I'll tell you why. I don't see anything in Scripture when we're talking about Mary and Martha, and Martha in particular, I don't see anything in Scripture that, scripture that would believe me to believe she'd let him leave hungry. Every time you see Martha, she's cooking, there's food everywhere. Now, it could be that he just had gotten hungry the next morning, but I, don't, I think it's real easy to, to, to come to the conclusion that Jesus has probably spent the night in prayer. Because the closer he gets to Calvary, the more he's, he's in tune with, the he's always 100% in tune with the Father. But you know what I mean, the more time he's spending with him in prayer. It's kind of like if you've ever been through some major life event that you know is coming, maybe it's a surgery, maybe it's, you know, somebody's impending death, or, or maybe it's your kid going to college or something. As you get closer to that, do you, do you not tend to spend more time with the Lord and more time with the Lord and more time with the Lord? And, and I think that that's, that's probably what's going on here. I don't think that Mary or Martha would ever let him get hungry. He's probably in solitude somewhere praying. And I don't think it's wrong to read between the lines and try to form those little harmless conclusions about things. It's okay to use your imagination where the Bible is silent. Just so it doesn't become your doctrine. But he finds he's hungry as he's returning to Jerusalem. And that's important to remember. Remember? Jesus is 100% man. Now, he's also 100% God. We call that the hypostatic union. And by the way, our 9th through 12th graders know that term well because I'm drilling it into them in Bible class in the school. The hypostatic union. I said, if nothing else, you can impress your friends that you know what the hypostatic union is a Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. You say, that math doesn't work out. That's because God transcends math. God's not bound by math. God can be 100% of two different things, and he is. Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. And sometimes, and rightfully so, we, we look to his deity, but don't forget his humanity. He got hungry. By the way, he never once used his deity to give something to himself, did he have the power? Did he have the ability to produce food that he could eat? Sure, he did, but he never did. Now, figs were everywhere. Fig trees were everywhere in Israel. It's not like you know these were fig trees that were owned by some landowner. Uh, fig trees were like kudzu. <laughs> you know, is that a thing up here? Kudzu? Yeah, I know down in Alabama where I was, it was the, it was the state plant. Kudzu, man, it was everywhere. But he's hungry. Hebrews 4:15, for we have not uh, an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He has felt everything that we've felt without being sinful. He knows what it is to be tired, he knows what it is to be sad, he knows what it is, he knows what it is to be confused, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. He knows what it is to be unsure. He, he knows what it is to be heartbroken. He knows what it is to be hungry. Okay. At this point in verse 13, we see a really stark example of Jesus limiting one of his one of his uh, attributes. Did Jesus ever stop being God when he was on earth? No, never. But as a man, did he sometimes limit his attributes? And the answer is yes. Jesus who is omnipotent submitted that omnipotence to the will of the Father. Jesus never ever exerted his power without the Father's blessing. Okay, so he limited his omnipotence. Is he omniscient? Sure. I'm sorry, is he omnipresent? Yes. God can be everywhere at once. Did Jesus ever utilize omnipresence on the earth? The answer is no. He was only in one place at one time. All right. So if we see that he limited his omnipotence and omniscience, then, I'm sorry, his omnipresence, then his omniscience, it's reasonable to conclude that there were times that he limited that too. There were times when Jesus didn't know. And that does no hurt to his, his deity. Because how can he be tested in all points like as we if he's never experienced what it is to not know? Now, only an all-powerful God can will himself to not know, but he did. By the way, I'm also glad to report that our omnipotent God can will himself to forget. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. If you've put them under the blood, friend, quit bringing them up. God has purged them from his memory. If you're carrying that, you're the only one carrying it. God's, God's... God's let it go. God's put it in the the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west, and I'm thankful for that. Verse 13, look what it says. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came if happily. That means that he did not draw upon his omniscience to know whether or not there'd be figs on that tree he had to go and see for himself he had to learn that information so he limits his omniscience okay when he gets there he finds a tree that is full of leaves but no figs so if you're hungry and you find a barren fig tree that's a problem didn't have convenience stores like we have now, and even if they did, I doubt he had any money. So he's got an empty fig tree. Now it's interesting to me that, that some of the commentators, even some of the ones that I use, question whether or not this portion of Scripture should be here because it seems so totally out of character with Jesus. It's not. That's, that's a misunderstanding of this passage. But it just seems like he's being petulant. He got up there, and there was no fig, so he cursed the tree. That poor little tree didn't do anything to him. First of all, a tree is an inanimate object. There's no such thing as a poor little tree. A tree is a tree. Okay? And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Should he have expected figs to be on that tree given the season? Let's read the verse. Verse 13 Seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. So you would think the answer to that question, should he have expected figs given the season, would be no. But it actually is yes. And here's why. When you start researching fig trees in Israel, You found out a few things about them. First of all, they bring forth their leaves in March and April. The first figs would appear in June. Then there'd be a second appearance in August and even a third appearance some years in October. So at any point in the year, there should be something on that tree. Something. Now... When it says the time of the figs was night, that just means they weren't ripe. It doesn't mean there weren't any figs or shouldn't have been any figs. Here's what's interesting about these fig trees. There's going to be unripe figs, which, by the way, are still edible, not as good, but they're still edible, still provide nourishment. There should be some unripe figs on there. But I'll tell you what else should have been there. Figs that were still present from the last season. These fig trees in Israel have a way of holding their figs all year long. There's no frost, especially around Jerusalem. There's no frost to, to kill them. So there should have been some some fig, whether it was an old fig from last season or an umright fig about to come in for this season, there should have been something on this tree... I want you to remember this. Keep this in your mind for later in the message. There should have at least still been figs present from last season. Can you kind of file that away in your mental Rolodex for later? There should have at least still been some figs from last season. Okay, keep that in mind. So when you look at this tree and there's absolutely a lack of figs, there's no figs on it, that means that this tree is effectively useless. And that's a problem. Number two, so when Jesus sees this problem, he issues a pronouncement, a pronouncement. Look in verse 14, and Jesus answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now, remember, some people look at this and they say, well, I don't know if this should be here because that makes Jesus seem mighty petulant, mighty immature, and this is not the case. But can I remind you, Jesus being the creator is sovereign, and if he wants to pronounce a curse on a tree, he has every right to do that. See, that's the easy answer for anything like this. He's God. He can do what He wants. We're using human logic to come at this thing. I mentioned that Jesus is the creator. You do understand that Jesus of the Godhead, Jesus is the one that did the creating. Did you know that? We covered that in Bible class. I'm running, I'm running fast in this message tonight, so let me, let me use up some time for the Master Club's sake. Go to Colossians. This isn't in my outline. This is just something for free. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 15, it's contextually, it's speaking of Jesus, of Christ. Verse 15, who's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Colossians 1.16, for by him, who's him? Jesus. For by him were all things what? Created. All right. Now we know one verse does not a doctrine make. So let me give you another one. Go over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse number 1. God. Hebrews 1 verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his who? Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. All right, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses shall a thing be established. Let's go ahead and go to the third witness. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, we know from John 1.14 that when we're talking about God, we're talking about Jesus because John 1.14 says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we're talking about Jesus. That's who of the Godhead was made flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus. John one verse one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. What do we conclude from this? If you're one of the disciples and you're sitting around a campfire there and wherever you happen to be camping that night, or you're sitting around the table at Mary and Martha's place and you're listening to Jesus speak, you are hearing this very same voice that 4,000 years prior spoke into nothing. And said, Let there be light. You're hearing the same voice that spoke to you, said, Come unto me, all ye that labor. They're heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It's the same voice. Sometimes we act like we've got a different version of God, but we don't. My God created this world. My Jesus created everything you see. And I have the privilege of talking to him. Anytime I want to. And this book that we have is the same voice. In fact, it's even better than sitting around that campfire or around Mary and Martha's table because Peter said, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw it. I heard the voice. And we have a more sure word of prophecy. What we have is so far beyond anything that pre-Pentecost believers had. And even right up until the word was completed. Paul didn't live to see the word of God completed in written form. We have more at our disposal than Paul did. So shame on me when I don't take advantage of it. Shame on me when I treat it as just a book. Jesus pronounced this tree eternally barren. And this is not a petulant reaction to not getting what he wanted, no. This pronouncement in response to this problem was meant to be a picture. A picture. Verse number 20. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. Now remember, every scripture has but one interpretation, one correct interpretation. And that doesn't mean we always agree on said interpretation. We, sometimes we have to wait till we get to heaven to find out whether or not we're right. But scripture has all kinds of potential applications. So we're going to look at what I believe is the correct interpretation here, but there's also an application to be made. Because this is a picture. I believe that the fig tree is a picture or a type of the nation of Israel. You see this actually throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 8.13, Nahum 3.12. But let me draw your attention to Hosea 9 verse 10. God says, I found Israel... Like grapes in the wilderness, I saw your fathers as the first tripe in the fig tree at her first time. Does God make a distinct connection between figs and Israel? He does. And I believe that this is a picture of Israel. And so he sees this fig tree lush with with leaves green and virile, but devoid of any figs at any stage of development. And in cursing this tree, in causing it to wither, Jesus' strong message is this, despite their presentation... All the flourishing and all the sacrifices and all the incense and all, the, all the, the, um, the, the production that they put on there at the temple. And this is where it connects to the temple. All this presentation, they are holy without substance. All the leaves are pretty, but they're not doing anybody any good. This tree should be producing fruit. And Israel, all the rigmarole and all the ritual and all of that is just decoration. It's just presentation. And just like this fig tree, you have no substance. And you're barren. And this ties into his second cleansing of the temple as well. What's interesting is the fig tree is his lesson about outward corruption. The temple is his lesson about inward corruption. See, And Lord willing, we'll get into that next week. Turn to Matthew 7. Hold your place here and turn to Matthew 7. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And who is the primary audience of the Sermon on the Mount? Jews, right? Specifically, I believe that the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually teaching his disciples. But a crowd has gathered, and so the message expands to the crowd. Whether it's disciples or the crowd, either way, the audience is Jewish, and that matters in biblical interpretation. Who the audience is matters. So Matthew 7 Verse number 16. Ye shall know them by their what? Fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is what? Hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. All right, back to Mark. Back to Mark chapter 11. I want you to look at verse 20. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. It says the tree is dried, but it does not say the tree has died. That's important to remember going forward. The the two words that the Bible uses in Matthew and Mark and Luke actually is dried and withered, but it never says dead. And that's important to remember because if this tree is representative of Israel, is Israel dead? They're withered. They're dried. But they're not dead. Now, what Jesus is doing here in, in cursing this tree, he's finishing what his messenger, John the Baptist, started three years earlier. John chapter. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse number 10. Look what John the Baptist says. Isn't it interesting how this coincides? And now also, he's speaking to the Jews here. Because what's John's message? It's messianic, isn't it? He's preaching about the coming of Messiah. And what does he say to these people, these Jews that are awaiting their Messiah? He said, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, And cast into the fire. By way of application, something we can take from this. John Phillips makes a good point about this little tree. No life can thrive without the blessing of its creator. This tree stopped having the blessing of its creator. And what happened? It withered. It dried up. So the fig tree is a picture of Israel. And because Israel has, as a nation, rejected its Messiah, Jesus is using this tree to paint a picture. This tree will wither, just as Israel will. But there's also an application for the church. It's not the interpretation, but there is an application. As Christians, as children of God, would you agree that we are expected to produce fruit? We are. In fact, where do we get our fruit from? When you get saved, according to Galatians 5, where do we get our fruit from? Fruit of the Spirit, right? If you're saved, the fruit of the Spirit will, to some level, be present in your life. Okay? Remember we talked about how the fig tree was supposed to have figs. If nothing else, it should have figs from previous seasons. That there should still be some fruit there from previous seasons. Sometimes we treat our fruit as something that we, we produce for the glory of God and it's out there and people enjoy it and then we move on. But that's not true. We should be like this fig tree in this respect. The fruit of previous, previous seasons should still be there. And I can prove it from Scripture. You ready? John 15, verse 16. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should what? Remain. It shouldn't just make this big production and then it's gone. No, our fruit should remain from season to season. Let me give you a final thought. If this if this fig tree is a picture of Israel, and I believe it is, Israel has been cut to the root. It's dried. It's withered, but it's not dead. Currently, the nation of Israel is concealed. And those of the nation of Israel that have been completed, they've accepted Jesus as their Messiah. They have been wrapped up in the church. Okay, But there's an event that's going to take place in which the church, including those completed Jews, We're going to be snatched out of here. And it is at that moment that God publicly returns his gaze to the nation of Israel. See, the tribulation is not just about God pouring out his wrath, although he will do plenty of that. It's God calling his people back to him. Aren't you glad God doesn't give up on us? We'll be in heaven, enjoying all that heaven offers. But in those seven awful years, the story of Noah will be retold. Judgment will reign all around God's people. But God will supernaturally ferry them through all of it no wasn't delivered from the flood he was delivered through it and the jews god calls to himself and despite the antichrist's best efforts to destroy them god will supernaturally bring them through as a nation i really i'm not saying no jews will die i'm saying as a nation he'll bring them through And then they will see him that they pierced. And they'll mourn. People who lived a minimum of 2,000 years after it happened will look to the heavens and see Jesus riding that white horse and see the light cast through the holes in his hands and his feet. And they will know exactly who he is. They will know that he was exactly who he said he was, their Messiah. And the King of kings and Lord of lords will come down. He will put down the Antichrist and his hordes. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And he will take his rightful place on the throne of his father David. And once again, Israel will will be the center of all the world. They're withered. They're dried. But they're not dead. And I wonder, and this is just conjecture, there's no doctrine here. But I wouldn't be surprised if when we're, you know, we'll be there too. We're going to help him reign. He doesn't need our help, but aren't you glad he's going to let us help him? He doesn't need us, but aren't you glad he lets us have a part in things? Brother Earl, I would not be surprised if you and me are walking towards the city and on the side of the road is a little fig tree that was once cursed, that life has been given to it again, just like the Jews. Wouldn't be surprised. The missing fruit. Next week with the Lord's help, we're going to talk about this mystical fraud. I'm of the belief that the Ark of the Covenant went away sometime in Jeremiah's time. Wherever it is, I think that's when it disappeared. Historically, I think that's backed up, and the Bible doesn't mention it after that. I think a lot of things were meant to happen when Jesus said it is finished and the, the temple veil rent in two I think that that spoke a lot of things but you know what I think one thing it did I think it revealed to everyone what only the high priest knew there's no ark in there presence of God isn't there this whole thing with all its show and fanfare has been a fraud Jesus didn't come to Get rid of the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it. And any religion that doesn't have Jesus and Christ alone as its uh, sovereign is a fraud. It's a fraud. And that's what Jesus is saying when he goes into the temple and cleanses it a second time. And then he takes that opportunity to teach his disciples and us about mountain-moving faith.